There were a number of sermons that I was tempted to take this week for this podcast. Every week we choose a featured sermon, and this week we had an embarrassment of riches. There was number 500, Ebenezer, which uh, commemorated the 500th sermon that was printed, uh, a Hitherto Has the Lord Helped Us from Spurgeon. There was Grace Abounding, number 501, uh, A Jealous God on God's Zeal for His Own Glory, uh, Death and Life in Christ, I Know That My Redeemer Lives, The Root of the Matter, Uh, We could have chosen any one of those, and some of them would have been particularly rich and sweet. But this week, we've settled on 506, a sermon entitled Strong Meat. The text is Hebrews 5, 14. Strong meat belongs to those who are of full age, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. And it's a sermon that Spurgeon preached on the 19th of April, a Sunday morning in 1863. So why did we choose this sermon? As we work our way through the sermons of Charles Haddon Spurgeon this week, 500 through to 506, why this one? Because Spurgeon is a man who who knows what he's about. We know that he preaches, if you like, topical sermons. We know that At times he seems to go hither and thither in his sermon text selection. But he's not unaware of what takes place. In fact, there are indications in some of his more personal writings that at different points he's very much dealing with topics or ranges of topics that are definitely intended to accomplish certain ends. He shows that awareness in his introduction to this sermon on strong meat. We see the infant in its cradle, children laughing in their play, young men working with vigour, and the old man resting in peace in large houses. In such a mansion, if a careful Martha be in charge, provision will be made for all the different ages, milk for the babes, and the larder not without solid meat for the full-grown men. In parallel, in our father's great house, his family is always so large that you will always find believers in all stages of growth. Perhaps there is never a moment in the year in which there is not a new birth unto God by the Holy Spirit. So Spurgeon is aware, first of all, of the range of maturity and experience that there is in the household of God. But beyond that, he's also aware of his responsibility to feed everybody at those various stages of maturity. It were not fitting to give the milk to the man of full age, and equally improper to present the strong meat to those who are but infants. Our Lord has therefore been pleased to dictate directions as to the persons for whom the various provisions of his table are intended. Now there are various ways that pastors can undertake to address this disparity of maturity and experience, to speak to the range of people who are in front of them, spiritually speaking. Worth noting as well here, of course, that Spurgeon is thinking primarily now of God's people. So he's uh, not now immediately taking into account the preaching to the unbeliever as well as to the believer, although we know that that's something that he uh, does take full account of. So perhaps it's an expository series where you're working your way through uh, the an extended text, whether a, a whole book or a portion of a book. 
And one would anticipate in God's providence, God's kind providence, that over time there would be different sermons that would be adapted to these different levels of ability and expectation. Or it might be a topical series where you're working through a particular issue, or more than one such series, different ones intended to meet different particular needs. It may be that in the selection of uh, occasional texts for sermons, as you expound uh, texts in their context, each one taken separately, that there too you're saying, how can I ensure that I am dealing with all the various classes and needs that are before me? But that self-awareness as a pastor or a preacher, that's so important and Spurgeon is showing it here. He says our text talks of strong and solid meat, describes the persons who are to feed on it, and gives a mild rebuke to those who, by reason of indolence and sloth, have not attained to years of discernment and cannot therefore feed on substantial diet. So uh, that, that rebuke too, that's, that's a very thoughtful and careful one. It's mild. It considers reasons behind a particular lack and uh, apportions that uh, blame where it's properly due. So what is Spurgeon going to say as he deals then with this strong and solid meat? He says, first of all, I'm going to bring forth some of this strong meat and set it on the table before you. So here are things that Spurgeon considers to be uh, particular food, particularly with uh, more mature, more stable Christians in mind. The first one he identifies is the allegorical exposition of scriptural history. He says that the apostle was about to allegorize upon Melchizedek, and he 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 held back at this particular point. Now Spurgeon says beyond a doubt the historical parts of Scripture are intended to be instructive allegories setting forth heavenly mysteries and he draws examples from uh, the writings of the apostles, the the case of Hagar and Sarah, uh, the distinction between Isaac and Ishmael, the distinction between Jacob and Esau. Holy Scripture, then, is to be received not only as a literal description of facts which really did occur, but as a picture in which grace-taught souls, illuminated by the Holy Ghost, may see portrayed in express characters the great gospel of the living God. Now, you see how uh, Spurgeon's handling of Scripture immediately might cause some to buck in terms of the way he uh, is determined not to preach a moralistic sermon out of an Old Testament character, but to see not just the historical reality, but the the bigger picture, the express character of each person showing something of the great gospel of the living God. He then begins to talk about the, the way that different books, beginning with the Pentateuch, are uh, indicative of of certain particular lessons. Genesis, the history of dispensations. The book of redemptions is Exodus. Leviticus, the handbook of communion, the guide to access. Numbers, the record of experience. I believe that every book of scripture has some special lesson beyond its historical import, and perhaps when the history of the world shall have been fully wrought out, we shall see that the books of the Bible were like a prophetic role sealed to us, but yet fulfilled to the letter. 
Now, Spurgeon is going to give us a few cautions later on about this, but his point is that there are some deep portions in the Word of God. There are uh, characters, there are incidents, there are types and shadows, all of which need to be handled and handled carefully. Then, mysterious truths which have respect to the relationships of our Lord Jesus Christ and to his complex person. That is, that he is God and man, two distinct natures, but one person forever. So Spurgeon, the very simplest believer, understands that Christ is God and man, that Christ stood as the sinner's surety and paid his debt. But brothers, when we come to meditate much upon the person of our Lord Jesus Christ, we shall soon discover that there are depths of mystery, that is, revealed truth, in which an elephant might swim, as well as shallows where a lamb might wade. Now again, these are uh, live issues for many of us, the relationships of our Lord, of our Lord Jesus Christ and his complex person. Thoughts too high for comprehension or even consideration until our senses have been exercised. Again, Spurgeon isn't saying no one can ever understand anything about this. What he's saying is there are depths here that we need to be careful about before we trespass where we have not learned to go. The doctrine of Christ's ancient covenant is one example and I think many of us would say that's the case. Christ's frequent appearances on earth before his incarnation, those theophanies, Christ's eternal sonship, the procession of the Spirit from the Father and the Son, the conception of Jesus with regard to his humanity in the womb of the Virgin. These are all things, uh, he says, pointing forward then to Christ's second advent in which there are lofty questions, mighty difficulties, which need the full-grown intellect of the believer to grapple with them. And here is another dish loaded with solid meat. Then the doctrines of grace are supposed to be strong meat. Many young believers have felt God's foreordination to be like a stone rolled in their way over which they can scarcely climb. They've looked upon this glorious truth as a mountain blocking up their path. They haven't understood that though it be a mountain, it is one upon whose summit God communes with man. Or he goes on, the more advanced and inwrought, inwardly worked forms of Christian experience. Communion with Christ is a high mystery, never learned in the dame school of repentance, nor often in the grammar school of faith. But we must go to the university of repentance to learn it, leaning our head on Jesus' bosom and having foretastes of the fellowship which makes heaven what it is. This is one of those rare experiences which can only belong in its frequency to the full-grown believer. I do not wonder, he says, that some people cannot read Solomon's song. We do not expect that they should. If I put a book of algebra or a table of logarithms into the hand of a child who has just learned the multiplication table, I do not marvel that he should not understand it. The fact is that the song is to the whole Bible what the Holy of Holies was to the temple. At the very least, there's a word of caution there to those who quickly dismiss some of the uh, perhaps older or sometimes called pre-critical readings of Scripture. Spurgeon's saying perhaps one of the reasons why some dismiss uh, a certain spiritual or properly mystical understanding of portions of the word of God is that they themselves have never grasped their depths. So he says, before we leave the table set with these various sorts of strong meat, a word of caution. Milk you may use as you will, you can't take too much of that, 
but meat must be accompanied by a word of caution when placed before the uninstructed and feeble, lest you do mischief to yourself and to others. So, now here he's, he's not backing away from what he's saying. He's offering a caveat. Just take account of this. With regard to allegories, too many people make a nonsense about the allegories of scriptures, of scripture, trying to make things run on all fours that were meant to walk erect. So he says, don't make a meal of this. Don't, example, I've heard of another who preached from this passage in Ezra, nine and twenty knives, and went to show that they were types of the four and twenty elders. What he did with the surplus five, I don't know. The strong meat of allegory, says Spurgeon, must be for half-inspired saints like John Bunyan and those masters in Israel who are not to be carried away upon the back of every figure, but who can ride their figures like good horsemen with a bit in the mouth of the allegory and make it keep in a straight road and bear them safely on to their destination. Now we might even say that Bunyan did that well in the Pilgrim's Progress and in the Holy War, but if you've ever read Bunyan on that the temple spiritualized, there are points where you're scratching your head and going, I think you've gone beyond uh, what, where I can safely follow you. Maybe that's because Bunyan's half-inspired, uh, but, but even there, there are, there are men who are given to allegory who perhaps need to show more caution in some of these things rather than reading something into everything that just isn't or can't be there or making something to represent something that that it bears to which it bears no real resemblance again the same is true with regard to the good things concerning the person of our lord jesus christ the mysterious doctrine of the Trinity and the equally mysterious and sublime doctrine of eternal generation are best let alone by feeble minds. I do not think there are half a dozen men alive who ought to meddle with the last. Now bear that in mind in the light of some of the the squabbles and the arguments and the pontificating that's going on even in our current day about the sublime doctrine of eternal generation. Spurgeon suggested that he did not think that there were half a dozen men alive who ought to meddle with that doctrine. Now, I'm not saying, and neither is Spurgeon, that we should neglect that. What he's saying is, let those who are not mature be very careful should they decide to wade into the combat. The sonship of our Lord is a great and marvellous mystery, he says, to be meekly and reverently received, but never to be disputed about, except by those gigantic minds which belong to the past rather than the present. Well, he may be overstating that a bit. We might like to see two titanic Puritans enter the field of controversy. Two such men, for instance, as Dr. John Owen and Charnock. One might travel a thousand miles to to see them grapple one of these lofty subjects. But when the little men of these days meddle with them, it saddens the humble-minded and affords enlightenment to none. So with the doctrines of grace, handled with caution, yes, for some who do not discern good and evil. Many love high doctrine, but want it higher than the Bible. Some exaggerate free grace so that they deny its practical precepts. 
It is not holding half the truth, then, says Spurgeon, that marks the man. That's the attainment of a babe. But to hold all, and to be afraid neither of high doctrines or low doctrines, Calvinism or Arminian, Arminianism, nor any other ism, so long as there is truth in it. Here's the point. To pick the truth out and to hold fast that which is good is the conduct of a masculine, well-developed believer. Spurgeon is not saying that he's found a middle road between Calvinism or Arminianism. The man is an outright evangelical Calvinist. But what he's saying is there are some people who are so afraid of the labels that they end up rejecting truths that they that may uh, lie underneath those labels and being able not to just have a reactive theology that kicks against an extreme, but to be able to see what is scriptural in any system so long as it is of the word of God. And the same too with advanced experience. Some who've run to the extreme of despondency and others to the verge of levity through not knowing that strong meat is only for men of full age. And he may be talking there about some of the uh, the the early wildfire wildnesses may be speaking about some of the despondency of those who hoped to attain to things at which they never arrived. But he says, secondly, let me invite the qualified persons to come to the feast. Who is able to eat this strong meat? And he actually does a, a wee bit of allegorizing here for himself. Basically, he says, they're persons of full age. He points out this has nothing to do with physical, chronological age. The Greek word is men that are perfect, that is, who've reached the highest degree of spiritual development. And this is not necessarily the same as being an old man or woman, or even, as we shall see, having been a long time a Christian. There are, says old Master Brooks, some few believers who seem to be born with beards. Some young believers attain to spiritual maturity quite quickly. Some older believers who've been in the way a long time still lack maturity. So what does this mean then? Well, a babe has the same parts as a man, but the babe is perfect in its measure, though not perfectly perfect. They need to grow up, expand and enlarge and be consolidated. Faith, hope, love, patience are all in the babe Christian, but they are all little in miniature and all must grow. And he is of full age whose faith is vigorous, whose love is inflamed, whose patience is constant, whose hope is bright, who has every grace in full fashion. So you've got this maturity, this balance, this completeness, completeness. Then you've also got not merely development, but strength. The, the grown man has knit sinews. His bones have become more full of solid material. So with the advanced Christian. You understand what the full-grown Christian is. He can do and dare and suffer what would have frightened him before. He can fight with dragons, though once he would have fled before a grasshopper. He can now endure to pass through deep waters, though once a little brook would have swept him away. So, again, it's not that the uh, older Christian is different in kind, but there's a degree of strength. And then, using the text, they've had their senses exercised. Now, these, says Spurgeon, are the senses of the soul, spiritual eyes and ears, spiritual nose and, and taste. And, and here's, his, here's his allegorizing, if you will. Um, so the eyes, 
a mature Christian can see things that are hidden to the eyes of the babes. They've looked upon the king and his beauty. They've looked into the depravity of their own heart. And, and, and when, they, when they're looking at some teaching, there are things that just don't sit right in their eyes. The same is true with the ear. And again, he uses the metaphor of listening to music where there are duff notes in it. And as you listen, you're saying, no, that's not quite right. That doesn't ring true. It's, it's out of tune. I don't hear the keynote of the gospel. I don't hear the grand old tune of orthodoxy. The Christian who is mature has a fine, keen, discerning ear. You can tell the difference between truth and error. He's not easily carried along by falsehood. Then there's the nose, the intention of which is to smell things afar off, says Spurgeon insightfully. True Christians have smelt the fragrance of Christ's fellowship. Uh, they, they, they can detect decay or the spiciness under which the crafty trader will conceal decay. There are certain persons, he says, whose ministry is putrid and the, the mature Christian can smell when something's going rotten. And then there's taste, which also needs educating. Some men have no taste, and to them flavour is no luxury. But there, And there are many who have no taste spiritually. Give them a cup of mingle-mangle, perhaps ifses and butses, peradventures, or more perhaps is really, creature willings and creature doings, and they'll drink it down. They don't realise what they're drinking. They don't taste its, its foulness. But if you've been made to taste the sweets of covenant grace, if you've eaten his flesh and drunk his blood, you've been made perhaps too to drink the wormwood and the gall till your mouth knows every flavour, from the bitterness of death up to the glory of immortality, you may taste the strong meats without any fear. And lastly, he says, there's a sense of touch developed to a very high degree. Men are deficient in sight, for instance, have acquired by touch the knowledge which would, if they had not been blind, have been derived from their eyes. So believers have been made to touch the hem of Jesus' garment. And he says, this comes through use, and that use generally comes to us through affliction. And he uses the example of a man who, who first preached and two old saints dismissed his sermons as tinsel. But when he lost his wife and his heart was broken and his whole nature affected, the roots went deeper down into the solid truth. And when he preached again, the same woman said to her friend, it is all gold now. Afflicted Christians come to know the difference between tinsel and gold. What, what the child of God wants then, says Spurgeon, is matter. He would like to have the matter given him in a good shape, but still it is the matter, the real solid food that he wants, and that ministry will always be the most acceptable to advanced believers, which has the most of truth in it. So we, we learn, often though not always, by suffering what it is to, to develop this capacity. It is in this way that Christ grows us up. And then, very briefly and thirdly, a gentle rebuke to those who are not full-grown men. And again, this comes from the text in its context, because the apostle says that the Hebrew saints ought to have been teachers, but that they still remained infants. He says, we love our children. We're delighted with children. We love to have a house full of children, but it wouldn't do us any, ha any good, and we wouldn't be at all happy if our children always remained as infants. 
if when they were full grown, they still had to be carried everywhere. If when they should have been walking and running and working, they are still playing and weeping. Now, suppose under some circumstances you're dealing with someone who, through lack of capacity, is not at a mature stage. That's a different thing. Spurgeon's talking about 20 years of age and still wearing nappies, 30 years of age and still crying like a baby, 40 years of age and still needing milk. How long, he asks, have you been converted to God? How long have you known the Saviour? Why, I've known some converts that have been in long clothes, uh, baby clothes, for 30 years after they were converted and are babies still. If you ask them to speak for Christ, they could only say a word or two of mere babble. And as for their confession of faith, it was not a reason. They did declare the hope that was in them, but they did not give a reason for it, for they could not give one. Some grow so slowly that they seem as weak now as they were 20 years ago. They're still tottering along like a toddler and cannot run alone. And Spurgeon's saying, what, what, is, what is the problem with us that we can give so much diligence and so much effort and show such advancement in the things of the world, but when it comes to the things of God, we're happy to remain like babies, like infants. He says then, I want to just give you a, a word of rebuke. It must be gently, for you are our brother, and if you are but a babe, yet if you have life in you, you are saved. But why should you always be a baby, dear brother? It's not that you've been too worldly. You've made money. I wish you'd made an increase of grace. You've been attentive to other things, but have you been attentive in prayer, attentive to the scriptures, attentive to the, the ministry of the word? Oh, he says, if I can have in this church a body of strong men and women who know what they have received and hold it fast and grow in grace, who shall have their eyes lit up with enthusiasm because their hearts are burning with a divine fervor, why, there is nothing impossible to you. You shall make the church tell upon its age. You shall move London, which is the heart of the world, until it shall send out deep heartthrobs that shall reach throughout the universe. This happens with mature believers, with Christians, with uh, Sunday school teachers, with uh, those who instruct in the various different classes, the preachers who stand on the streets, whatever you may be, do not hold back. Do not let things ride past you. Do not be content with a childish Christianity. Be strong men, my brothers, all of you. And then, says Spurgeon, it shall be my happiness to see you like the old guard of Napoleon, marching irresistibly into battle. And this shall be your war cry if bad and evil times shall come. We can die, but we can never surrender. For God and for his truth, you shall make your last charge over your enemies and then enter the victory which he reserves for all them that diligently serve him. As often, when Spurgeon preaches in this way to the believers, one word, one word for the unconverted. I will give you more this evening, he says. There's that balance again, but now the word, prepare to meet your God. But how, says one, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. See, even when he's setting a table of strong meat and rebuking those who, because they haven't been exercised, have yet to attain to it, still there is here held out that gospel gobbit, that little nugget of truth and hope, so that all the way through 
while he is dealing perhaps with some of this stronger meat, Spurgeon remains aware of the range of people in front of him, calling the the ones who are deliberately infantile to step up, encouraging and urging those who are exercising themselves unto godliness and not forgetting to call into God's kingdom and glory those who are following on. Well, I trust that's been a blessing to you. I hope that next week you'll join us. It's actually Sermon 507 next week, our featured sermon, the very next one, The Power of Prayer and the Pleasure of Praise. We'll be reading together uh, through those uh, various sermons, 507 through to 513. And you can join us on Twitter at Reading Spurgeon. If you'd like to do that, we'd be delighted to uh, to have you join us there. And there are other opportunities. If you want to go to mediagratii.org slash podcast, you can sign up to uh, a weekly newsletter with the sermon for the week in it. But I hope you will join us and I hope that it will be a blessing to your soul and that together we might go on until we are eating more of God's strong meat, enjoying the milk always, but exercised by whatever means God is pleased to use to take and to digest some of those deep and profound sweet truths of the gospel of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening. I'm Jeremy Walker, and From the Heart of Spurgeon is a podcast from Media Gratii. For more resources like this, including a biographical film of Spurgeon's life and labours, visit mediagratii.org.